So we are in the book of James today. So we're going to, I'm going to give you an introduction to the book and then we're going to go through verse one. So I'll start with the quiz. Who wrote the book of James? Was it A, James, brother of John and son of Zebedee, the first apostle martyred and also known as James the Less? Or was it B, James, the son of Alphaeus, another of the twelve disciples? Was it C, James, the father of the other apostle Judas? Or was it D, James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus and brother of Jude, who led the church in Jerusalem? Last one? Okay, yes, James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus. So let's read those scriptures that explain who he is. Matthew thirteen fifty-five. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? So what we know of James is that he was a half-brother of Jesus and had a large family with at least three brothers and at least two sisters. So we don't know how many sisters he had. And we also know that James, along with the rest of his family, is not a believer. An example of his unbelief, not just his but his whole family, is given in John 7, verses 3 to 5. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. So this was for the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And the Jews wanted to kill him. But Jesus used wisdom to go down a bit later on. And the following verses show what their attitude, Jesus' family attitude was towards Jesus. Uh, Luke 8, 19-21 Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And I just want you to notice here how Jesus redefines relationships. What relationships he considers important. Okay, So his family, Jesus' family that he prioritized, are those who hear and believe and then obey. So for Jesus, the spiritual or kingdom relationships were far more important than his blood or physical family relationships. And so it should be for us as well. Because our spiritual family is eternal. Our physical family is temporary. Now I'm not saying we should disregard our physical mother and father, brothers and sisters. But in the scheme of things, who can you rely on the most? Spiritual family, right? So, now again, why were Jesus' mothers and brothers standing outside wanting to talk to him? Because they thought he was crazy. He was out of his mind. Put yourself in their shoes. Here's Jesus claiming to be the saviour and they're thinking he's lost it. He's bringing dishonour and disrespect to their family. They're thinking he's making a fool of himself. And you can see that in Mark 3, 20-21. Then the multitudes came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. 
But when his own people, that is his family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So, imagine how discouraging it would have been for Jesus (laughs) to be mocked and ridiculed by his own family. So, there's a lot of us who grow up in families where we might be the only one who actually believes in God. But you need to count the cost. This is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, of following the will of the Father. Luke 14, 26-27 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, we're just praying this morning, those Muslim converts to Christianity who have to leave their family because they become a Christian. They choose Christ over their family. And in our Western world, we don't have to do that. We don't have to be counted as dead by our families. Our families don't have a funeral for us because we become a Christian. But there are some decisions we must make which will go against what our family wants us to do. Now, there's a change, a massive change. Jesus appears to James after his resurrection, and James becomes a very important leader in the early church, and his mother and his brothers also believed. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And... 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 is basically the gospel in a nutshell, and it says this, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep. And verse 7 is important here. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. So here it specifically says that Jesus appeared to James. So this is an incredible turnaround. James the cynic, to James the apostle, a leader, a pillar in the church, of Jerusalem. And this is one of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, the changed lives, people willing to die for what they believed. If the resurrection didn't happen, do you really think that James would have had such a radical change? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then James would have said, well, that's what I thought would happen. But when he did rise from the dead, he goes, whoops, I was wrong. He's real. And a couple of verses that show James' position in the church. In Jerusalem there, it's Galatians 2, verse 9. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church. This is the church in Jerusalem. And Galatians 1, 19. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here, he has a status of an apostle. So, just a reflection on 
what it was like for Jesus growing up and James living in that family and not believing, I find it incredible that no one in Jesus' family believed in him before his resurrection. I mean, talk about spiritual blindness. They grew up in the presence of God and didn't recognize him. I mean, wouldn't you notice there's something different about Jesus growing up? But once James' eyes were opened, he wasted no time in submitting himself to his new Lord and Savior. And I've got a quote from David Guzik. It says, when he did follow Jesus, he followed with great devotion. An early history of the church says that James was such a man of prayer that his knees had large, thick calluses, making them look like the knees of a camel. It also says that James was martyred in Jerusalem by being pushed from a high point of the temple. Yet the fall did not kill him, and on the ground he was beaten to death, even as he prayed for his attackers. And then, according to the historian Josephus, James was martyred in approximately AD 62. So when was the book of James written? Well, the best we know, um, it's probably the first book of the New Testament written, around about 45 AD. It was written before the first council of Jerusalem in AD 50, and it's only about 12 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So yeah, one of the first books written, or one of the oldest New Testament books, depending which way you look at it. Now, who's it written to? Well, it's written to all the Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And you see that in verse 1. But, of course, it definitely applies to all of us today. Now, what's the theme of the book? Well, I think the best way to describe the overall theme of the book of James is to compare it to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. As we heard on the Bible Project summary of the book of James, there's at least 15 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. And a good way to sum it up is, I think, by reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. And Jesus is finishing up his Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I would liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. So James does a masterful job of describing the connection or relationship between faith and works. So like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verses 24 to 27. If you do what I say, then you are like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But if you don't do what I say, then you are like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So like in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom in the book of James is very practical. You are wise if you do, but a fool if you don't. Now, some people don't like the book of James, and some people have objections about the book of James, and they say, well, it contradicts grace. But I think it's important that we understand from the start that the book of James, or James, the message that he's giving us here, he's not saying that we are saved by what we do, 
Okay, it's important to understand that. For example, he says in James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You're guilty of all. So what is James saying? Well, he's making it clear that no one, nobody, can be made right with God by keeping the law. But James also goes on to say that faith without works is dead. Just believing something to be true is not enough. And to make this point, James talks about the demons. He says that even the demons believe and tremble that Jesus is Lord, but obviously they are not saved. Why? Well, they don't have faith. It's like believing that a parachute will save you if you jump out of a plane from 30,000 feet, but if you don't put it on, you're still going to splatter all over the ground. Okay? The parachute won't help you unless you put it on. It must be applied. So the book of James, with its emphasis on the fruit of our salvation, which is good works, does not contradict Paul's teaching on grace and justification, but actually complements it. When you think about what Paul said about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, Okay, Paul said there should be fruit if you're a Christian. That's what James is talking about too. Also, James is making it clear right from the start, and we'll talk about this next week, in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 1, that we need to, by faith, ask God to give us the wisdom or strength that we need to live a godly life. Nowhere in the book of James does it just say, just try harder. Okay? James's message is that we need more of God's wisdom if we are to be wise and live a life that pleases God. And the wisdom James is talking about here is not just knowing God's will, but the power to do God's will. Now, the purpose of the book of James? Well, the Bible Project says concerning the book of James, this is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. (laughs) So, we're going to meet a lot of instructions here on how to live the Christian life, and... It's going to be hard. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Do you really want to know if you are living as a Christian should live? Then this is the book that will help you to know. It's like the men's study we're doing now. Going through the 20 attributes of a godly man. It's a similar thing to doing that. But going through the book of James. Now, Overall, James is writing to Jews to encourage them to continue growing in their new Christian faith. And James is emphasizing that good actions, good works, will naturally flow from those who are filled with the Spirit and states that where there is no repentance or no change in the way a person lives, then their faith is dead. In other words, they were not saved in the first place. Okay, So it's very clear that we must understand that true repentance brings change. Okay, It's a gradual change. It might take a little bit of time to come through, as it did like in my life, but there must be change eventually. If there's no change over a long period of time, then maybe that person wasn't saved. I see the book of James as being like a New Testament book of Proverbs. 
it does quote the book of Proverbs frequently, and it also makes many references to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And again, his focus is to get us to walk the walk and talk the talk. And some of the key concepts include speaking with love. And you can go back to Ephesians 4.30, I think. it's Paul says, speak the truth in love. It talks a lot about serving the poor and, of course, being wholly devoted to God. So if we're going to sum up the book of James, because most epistles have a key verse, which basically is their main purpose, their main point. I think the key verse that helps us to understand what the overall message of the book of James is would be James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And that says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And as we heard on the Bible Project, the word perfect is important. It's repeated seven times in the book. It refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with biblical values and doctrinal teaching. And the truth is that we all live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We know what is right, but often don't do it. Now, some examples of what it means to be fractured, what it means to know what to do but not do it. Okay. A big one for a lot of people is not regularly sharing your faith with others. Some people find it difficult to give financially to support God's work through the church. Some people find it difficult to stop watching worldly movies or play worldly video games and have little or no compassion for those who are less well off. Now, by compassion I mean actually doing something, not just pity. True compassion has hands and feet. Another way that we know what to do but don't do it is we get involved in relationships that are not godly. And this could be just friends, getting involved with friends who are not Christians and pull us away from the Lord. Or it can be a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, which could lead to fornication and pulling our hearts away from God. It happens very easily. Our hearts can be stolen by a girl or a boy and we lose our focus takes our focus off the Lord. Another thing is gossip or unwholesome speech. Another thing we do is we show favoritism and bad language. And there's just some of the examples. So, as you can see, very practical. But what's the purpose of this book? God's purpose is to make us whole, to live an integrated life. What's this called in the Bible? That word starts with S. Sanctified, yes, we want to be sanctified. It's called sanctification. It's a process of being set apart to God in our thoughts, words, and deeds. To be useful for the Master's use. To be a vessel of honor that God can use for His glory. We should be seeking to become what God has already declared us to be. And it all begins with wisdom. The ability to see my hardships with a new perspective. And James tells us that God will generously give this wisdom to those who ask, without doubting God's character and love for them. 
Again, I like what the Bible Project said. True wisdom is choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. Will I continue to trust him even when times are hard? Will I continue to put my faith in God even when I can't see God? Okay, Am I going to walk by faith or by sight? Do things have to be going well for me to be able to praise God? So all our problems can lead us to a deeper faith in God as we learn that God will always meet us in our trials and will always give us everything we need to get through. And we discover this when we not only listen to God's word but also do what it says. Because we're new creations in Christ, we can face our trials with total faith in the Father, just like Jesus did. And like Jesus, we can experience the peace that passes understanding and have joy in the midst of sorrow. So, that's our introduction. So, let's jump into the first verse. We're just going to cover verse 1 today. So, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, Greetings. So, James, this is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, it says it's written to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad. Now, why is the nation of Israel referred to as the 12 tribes scattered abroad? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament, you will find that the nation of Israel were very disobedient. After King David, it was a steady decline. The northern kingdom never had another good king after King David. And the southern kingdom, well, they had a mixture of good and bad kings. But eventually, their rebellion and their hardness of heart caused them to go into captivity. The Assyrians and the Babylonians took them over. They deported them into other lands and they settled down and many never returned to the land of Israel even when their 70 years of captivity was completed and they were given freedom to go back. They were encouraged to go back but they didn't. And regarding the extent of the dispersion, the scattering of the Jews into foreign lands, Josephus wrote, There is no city, no tribe, whether Greek or barbarian, in which Jewish law and Jewish customs have not taken root. So, barbarian just means non-Greek-speaking people, right? Back then, in that culture, basically the whole Roman Empire was Greek-speaking. So, if you weren't a Greek speaker, you were called a barbarian. Now, it's interesting, in which Jewish law and Jewish customs had not taken root. They had synagogues, basically, everywhere. And for the last two millennia as well. David Guzik comments on this. Paul referred to our 12 tribes in his speech before King Agrippa. So in Acts 26 verse 7. And the concept of the 12 tribes among the Jewish people was still strong, even though they have not lived in their tribal allotments for centuries. So it was just a common way that the Jews referred to themselves as the 12 tribes. Now, even though it was written to the Messianic Jews, the Jews who have converted to Christianity, it still applies to us non-Jewish people. We are all believers in Christ. We, like them, also need a good 
kick in our spiritual rear to help us to be perfect or complete in Christ. To deal with those areas in our lives where our actions don't match our profession of faith. So just a warning here, the book of James will take a lifetime to apply. Our sanctification is not going to be finished in a year or a week. Okay. God promises that he will finish what he started, being confident of this very thing, that he who started a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So don't be discouraged. The main thing is that we continue to change, continue to become more Christ-like day by day. What we need to do is what the book of James says to do, and that is to be humble. We need to learn to humble ourselves, to walk in the Spirit, trusting in His strength and choosing to live a life worthy of our calling. And as bitter as this truth pill or reality check is to swallow, this book will become your best friend if you continue to seek the Lord and grow to become like Him. Now in verse 1 it also says, A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to focus on the word bondservant. In the Greek it's doulos. And it literally means slave. It meant that you were a permanent slave, a slave for love, for life, a slave by choice. And this is really interesting, I love this, because a lot of the other authors in the scriptures, they refer to themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And so it comes from a custom, a Hebrew custom, so I'll read it to you, it's Exodus chapter 21 verses 5 and 6. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. And you also read that in Deuteronomy 15.17. Now think about James, okay? It would have been so tempting for James to boast about his close physical relationship to Jesus as Jesus' half-brother, but he doesn't. There's nothing like that here. He never refers to that. He never boasts in that. So James here is demonstrating amazing humility. Also consider that in the Greek culture of the day, personal freedom was highly valued. And so to declare yourself to be a slave a bondservant, was very degrading. But for us who believe, it is an honour to be a slave of Christ. Why? Well, remember that when Jesus was here, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, if Jesus was willing to come to this earth and serve me and give his life for me, am I willing to be a servant to him and give my life for him, whatever it might take. And it says Lord there, the bond servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord is the Greek word kurios, and it simply means the master or the master of a slave or doulos. 
But in this context, it shows that James considered Jesus to be God. And here's a, a quote from a guy called Esterly. It says, Hellenistic Jews use Kyrios as a name for God. So Hellenistic Jews means the ones who speak Greek. Kyrios is a Greek word. So the Jews who speak Greek use Kyrios as a name for God. O Kyrios Dominus was a title given to the early Roman emperors in order to express their deity. So here, James is using this word Kyrios to express deity for Christ. That's what it would have meant in that culture. So again, today, if someone was a half-brother of Jesus, they would be going, oh, look at me, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. But no, he doesn't mention that. But not only does he not mention his physical relationship, his biological relationship to Jesus, James here declares that not only is he a slave of Jesus, but also Jesus is God. So here's James, who is a physical half-brother of Jesus, lowering himself to be a slave of Jesus and declaring that Jesus is God. And so what matters to James now is that he is a part of the family of God. He is a part of the kingdom of God. He's been adopted into God's family. And he took to heart what Jesus said in Luke 8.21. But Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And guess what? You and I have the same privilege. We are born again. We are those who hear the word of God and do it. We are his mother and his brothers. We are his family. Yeah. So, conclusion. Remember that a slave or doulos is a slave by choice. We're not born and God forces us to serve him. God is looking for willing submission. A doulos is a slave by choice. A slave for love for life. Remember what it said in Exodus? I love my master. I do not want to go free. So for us, it means acknowledging that Jesus is our master, that he is God, and then willingly and voluntarily submitting to Jesus. And again, the key here is willing submission to God's will for our lives. Will we choose to humble ourselves and trust him or seek our own will and desires? So remember the main point of the book of James and the most important verse to memorize? God's will is for us to become more and more integrated in our lives, someone whose life matches what they profess to believe, someone who is whole and not fractured. Now James 1, 2-4 My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So let's read it together, eh? You ready? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. So, the first step in this journey is to what? Recognize your place in God's kingdom. You're a part of God's family. I must become a doulos, a voluntary slave to God the Father and to Jesus, who is God the Son. So, just as it was for James, we will have to deal with our pride 
and also make the decision to put our faith in God's goodness despite our circumstances, despite how we feel. We walk by faith and not by sight, not by feelings, yeah? Now, we need, I need, to have a Gethsemane experience like Jesus did. Do you remember what he did just before the cross? He was going to bear the sin of all mankind. He was going to have the wrath of God poured out on him. And he said, God, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted himself to God's will. And we will never experience any circumstance or anything that will happen to us that will be that will even come close to what Jesus went through. But Jesus set the example. We need to have our own Gethsemane experience and probably multiple Gethsemane experiences where we say, not my will, but yours be done. When we start to face a trial, we can rebel and have a pity party. God can't love me if he's allowing this to happen to me. No. We're going to find out that the word trial and temptation are the same word. It's like there's two sides of the same coin. Satan uses the bad things that happen to us as temptations. God uses those bad things that happen to us as trials, and the purpose of those trials are to grow us. So, Father, I just thank you that you have given us this opportunity to humble ourselves before you. And, Lord, I pray that we'll be willing to accept any correction any change that needs to happen in our lives so that we can become more like you. Lord, that we can make this process of change an easier one because you have said that it's going to happen. You will complete what you have started, the good work you have started. But Lord, we can be rebellious children and we get lots of smacks along the way or we can cooperate and we can bring more glory to you as we go along. So help us just to be humble, help us to submit ourselves to you and to walk by faith and not by sight or feelings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.